Brian just covered the first page of my sermon, so the good news is we're going to be about four minutes shorter than we anticipated this morning, unless I decide to ad lib and fill in. So that's Dan was saying earlier that he didn't think my preaching was quite long enough, and so um, we might we might go a little long. So I didn't want to go too short, um, but that that will be that. But the um, uh, as Brian mentioned, my name is John. I'm one of the worship leaders here, and it's an honor and a privilege to be preaching God's message to you this morning. And um, we did start with, um, uh, as Brian mentioned, this, this uh, study of the Gospel of John. And um, it has been a couple of weeks since we've been into it. And our reading today is going to take place in John chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to that. And um, this is a little strange because Jesus was just resurrected a week ago. And now we're going to back up six months in time to before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and subsequent resurrection. So it's going to feel a little bit weird. And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to take you back even just a half a step before that and reorient everybody to where we left off before Holy Week. But first, if you would join me in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gospel of John and the way you reveal your son Jesus to us. As we continue to unpack your word this morning, Lord, and as you speak to us through these words today, we pray, dear Lord, that the words I say and the meditations on all of our hearts will be true to your word, will honor and glorify you, and help us to develop a greater understanding of you and your will for our lives. Amen. So if you've ever watched a TV series and then there's been a little gap in it, when they bring out the next episode, they say previously on this series. So here we go. Previously in the Gospel of John, this all takes place, John chapter 6, takes place at the Passover celebration or at the, uh, the time of the Passover celebration a full year back. So as I mentioned, our reading this morning from John 7 is going to be six months prior to the last Passover where Jesus was arrested and crucified and and subsequently resurrected. John 6 takes us back six months prior to that. And here's what happens. Starts with Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Crowd gets all hopped up and excited. So Jesus retreats into the hills to pray, right? His disciples hop on a boat, cross the Sea of Galilee in a boat over to the other side of the lake to Capernaum. Jesus meets them along the way by walking on the water. And the disciples let him into the boat. Good choice, probably. And instantly they arrive at the other side in Capernaum. The next day, all the people that were there for the feeding of the 5,000 on the other side of the lake catch up with Jesus. And they say, hey, we want another miracle. And he says, hey, let's talk about this instead. I'm the bread of life. If you want eternal life, you got to eat my flesh, drink my blood. They're like... I don't think so. So they scatter. They leave. And Jesus is left there with pretty much his 12 original disciples and practically no one else. And now, John chapter 7, right? So here we are. Jesus has basically been abandoned by most of his disciples. His original 12 disciples are still in play. But six months have passed, and now we're going to pick up with John chapter 7. And this takes six months later. And this is going to center around the festival of the tabernacles that happens in the fall. 
So John chapter 7 starts with this. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now I want to stop there for just a minute and talk about Jesus' brothers. They'd obviously seen some of the miracles that he performed. They were probably even pretty impressed by them. And that's why they're asking him to go ahead and go to the festival, more or less so he can show his skills to a bigger audience and they can gain some fame in the process. But believing Jesus can do miracles and believing in Jesus are two different things. And it's important to note the difference because we too have the decision to make to not just believe that Jesus was very powerful and a wise teacher, but was actually so much more than that. Jesus gave his life for our salvation, and believing in that is what believing in him really means. Jesus' brothers aren't there, at least not yet. Therefore, Jesus told them, verse 6, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. And remember, this is all happening six months prior to that last Passover where Jesus is arrested and crucified. So he knows that this is not his time. It's still six months away. So my time is not yet here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he'd said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now, it seems like Jesus just told a little white lie to his brothers, right? Said, I'm not going to go to the festival, and then they left, and then he went to the festival. But the language Jesus uses doesn't really preclude him going to the festival later. The Festival of Tabernacles is a week-long celebration And basically what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going with you guys. And um, some texts, some translations of the Bible, notably the King James Bible, actually include the word yet. I am not yet going to the festival. This translation leaves it out. But basically the key takeaway here is that Jesus is just not really interested in going with his brothers and making a big showy entrance at the festival. He wants to go quietly and a time and place of his choosing so he can address the people uh, in the way that he chooses to. Verse 11. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So the crowd feared the religious leaders at the time because they would threaten anybody who would publicly support Jesus. And we'll hear later in a couple of weeks when we get into John chapter 9, verse 22, when Jesus heals that blind man 
And the Pharisees are like, how did this happen? And they're all just like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. You talk to him about it. They are afraid to tell the Pharisees that Jesus was the one that healed them. And because the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders could excommunicate someone from the temple. And that was the threat that they held over the Jewish people at the time. Because to a Jewish person, this was a pretty severe punishment to be excommunicated from the temple. And they didn't want that to happen. So they were afraid. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, although actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. And Jesus is referring to the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And that healing occurred on the Sabbath. And all the Pharisees cared about is that Jesus just violated the Sabbath by healing a man. And they even came down on the man that got healed because he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath. So forget that this great miracle happened. The Sabbath had been violated. But then Jesus is talking to them about circumcision. And the law of Moses, the Jewish law, declared that any newborn baby would need to be, male baby, obviously, would need to be circumcised on their eighth day after their birthday. And obviously, this sometimes fell on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees committed to that law and did circumcision on the Sabbath, but yet they were holding Jesus accountable for healing somebody on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is about to lay into them for their hypocrisy here. Verse 23. Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead... Judge correctly. And this is the end of our reading today. So if you've been participating in a life group this year, many of us have, we have this sheet, and at the end of it, it's got these faith and action questions. These look familiar to you. And one of the faith and action questions is this. Currently in this season of your life, who do you relate to most in the story and why? So I thought it would be fun today to take a few minutes and walk through the characters in the story and find out who we relate to the most. So the four main characters or groups in the story are Jesus, his brothers, the Pharisees, and the Jewish people. You go back through all 24 of those verses, that's who you've got in the story. Now I'm going to give you a little hint. This is one of those rare occasions where in church, the answer to the question is not necessarily Jesus. 
right? Who do you relate to in the story? Um, unless you are one of these people that is okay telling off your brothers, providing an amazing teaching to a large crowd, and then smoking religious leaders in a theological debate and sending them packing. Anybody relate to Jesus in the story? Okay, no hands. All right, how about his brothers? Anybody relate to Jesus' brothers? Now, I have to admit there's a time in my life where I did relate a little more to Jesus' brothers. Pursuit of worldly glory, fame and fortune, and earthly success. Fortunately, that's not me anymore. I don't do that um, and, and don't pursue that. But the other side of the brothers is their lack of belief in Jesus. And that's something that we have the benefit of the entire Bible to benefit from. A Bible that, in fact, a couple of Jesus' brothers actually contributed to. And so believing in Jesus as the Messiah is not so difficult for us. So for me, even though I could relate to the brothers at one time, I don't feel that I relate to them so much at this season of my life. How about the Pharisees? Anyone relate to the Pharisees? Couple? Anyone else? Want to admit you relate to the Pharisees? No? Um, there are times when I judge people by appearances, so I relate to the Pharisees that way. But I think, if I'm honest, I really stop short of their level of hypocrisy, just flat-out hypocritical, you know, uh, double standards. And I would certainly never want to kill Jesus or anyone to benefit, you know, my position or strengthen my position. So at times I relate to the Pharisees, but um, I have to be honest about these Jewish people. How many people relate to them? They're the fourth characters in the group. Anyone? Somebody didn't relate to anybody in this story, and that's okay. Out of the four characters in the story, I have to confess I probably relate the most to them, and I'll tell you why. I do a lot of public speaking and a lot of discussion leading in my job and in my service to the church. So people who know me outside of those two roles, outside of my job and the church, are often surprised to find out that I'm actually an introvert. Do we have any introverts in the congregation this morning? Got a couple? A few of you are probably too shy to raise your hands, and that's okay. Introverts. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I speak and lead as I'm called to for my job and for church, but left to my own desires, I'd just soon be left alone and withdraw to myself. When I was younger, I managed this primarily by emulating behavior of the people around me, like when I was in school, right? This kind of do-as-the-Romans-do kind of approach, just kind of sniff out the room, see what the vibe was, and then you could just emulate that. And that kind of approach allowed me to make friends real easy because I always slipped into whatever group was going on. And so whatever social group was, was um, doing things, I could kind of hang out there and listen to what's going on and then emulate that. And then, yeah, it was good. Kind of like a little chameleon sliding around. In my professional career, I would often listen to what the others had to say and I would try to latch on to a thought or an approach or a point of view that I could agree with. And that way, I could avoid conflict and confrontation. Now, at times, 
this conflict avoidance was somehow trying to avoid um, looking foolish or being wrong. And that expression of, you know, better to stay quiet and be thought a fool than open your mouth and end all doubt, that I lived by that at times. But most of the time, it was really more of a matter of I didn't want to invest the emotional time and energy to get into a disagreement and deal with that constructively with people. It was just a lot easier to kind of shrug and say, all right, internally I may be thinking you are dead wrong, but externally I just said nothing because it was just a lot easier. And when it came to my faith, I kind of relished in the fact that my salvation was secure, and for other people, their salvation was their problem. I got mine, you get yours, you figure that out. Now, I always felt called to serve in the church. I was always very, very active in the church, and and that led me to do a lot of speaking like I'm doing today. But it's easy to speak about faith to a group of believers. There's not a lot of risk in that, right? Because you're not gonna reach a lot of opposition. And so even though that led to a lot of speaking out, so to speak, um, it was in a really safe environment to do so. And that's not necessarily different from what a lot of us grew up with in the church, right? The church was all built on attraction. People in our society were usually looking for a church. And so it was all about, hey, well, maybe I'll invite you to church, or maybe the church programmings will get you guys interested in coming and that sort of thing. But... I grew up in a church where there wasn't a strong message about go out and share your faith because people were looking for church, and that's why all these neighborhood churches popped up. And the problem with this, though, today is we live in a society where people in increasing numbers are turning their backs on God. Not only are they not looking for a church and seeking that out, they're actually turning away. And we've got a society where we have this vocal minority of people who are pushing for cultural change and policy change, why this, while at the same time this silent majority are staying silent, and in some cases even disinterested. So that's a problem, because the minority of people who are the loudest are the ones that are pushing all the changes that us silent types uh, just kind of sit back and watch happen. But the even bigger problem is this, and that's this command that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So even if we are resigned to just watching the world fall apart around us, God's not. He expects us to play a role in making things different. And it's not easy to obey this command without finding our voice. There are ways to serve God without speaking, but in many cases, we do need to speak and find our voice. And I was convicted of this several years ago, and it really helped me to begin speak out a little more boldly in a number of areas, especially in my faith. And if we want to be more like Jesus and less like the crowd, we're going to have to do that too. Okay, so today I wanted to share a couple of things that we maybe we can keep in mind as we find our voice and play our part. 
The first thing is that we have to check our motives and we have to pick our battles very carefully. If we go back to verse 18 in our reading this morning, Jesus says this, whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. So it's become popular in our culture to encourage people to speak their truth. Has anybody heard that expression, speak your truth? Speaking your truth is a clever way of wrapping up your opinions in a bulletproof vest so that nobody can dispute them. That's speaking your truth. Truth is truth after all. So if I'm speaking my truth, there's nothing you can say to refute what I'm saying because it's my truth. The challenge with this is that it's extremely polarizing. If everybody digs in and labels their opinions their truth, there's nothing I can say to counter that. There's no way to create room for mutual understanding. There's no way to create compromise. Now, people are entitled to embrace their own opinions, embrace their own beliefs, and embrace their own life experiences. But they're not entitled to claim their own truth. They're not. There's no such thing as my truth, or your truth, or their truth. There is only the truth. That's all there is. And if there's ever any doubt as to what that is, we as Christians take that to mean God's truth. So it just really leaves no room for misinterpretation. And if we are going to be speaking out in the world to try to change hearts and minds of people, of those around us, we need to be praying and we need to be looking at Scripture for guidance. And we need to make sure that we're speaking God's truth and not something else. So along these lines, it's important to know that if you are speaking out on politics or anything that might trigger you and get you agitated or excited, there's a good chance you're not speaking out on God's truth. You might be, but there's a good chance that you're not. And sometimes um, those conversations can get the better of us and we can veer off the path a bit. And I wanted to share with you a little bit of a horror story to illustrate that point. So right before the 2016 election, Debbie and I were um, scrolling through Facebook and came across a posting on a political candidate. And it was pretty direct and it was laced with profanity. This person did not like this political candidate at all. And if you go back to the 2016 presidential election, you'll remember that you probably couldn't spend two seconds on Facebook without profaning a profanity-laced tirade from somebody about a political candidate. Pick your candidate. Somebody was opposed to them, right? But when we looked a little bit closer, what we found was that the person that posted this was actually a friend of ours from church. Yeah. Now, it was a different church, so you don't have to look around and try to figure out who it was. There's no, no need to do that. But here is a professed Christian, a member of the praise team at church, no less, lighting into a politician using language that would make a sailor blush. It was bad. So the next day, I catch up with this person after church, and we talked with 
them. I'll use, a, I'll use a plural pronoun. How about that? Demonstrate my wokeness. Um, so just wanted to talk with them about, hey, what, what's, what's up with this post, right? So we, we talked about that, and I assured them, hey, I love you. And at the same time, I have no particular love for this political candidate. So this is not about me taking an opposite side for what you're saying. But here's the deal. Because you came out so strongly in opposition to that person, you just lost the ability to witness to half of the population on behalf of Jesus. You just lost it. Because no one on that half of the political aisle now wants to hear anything about what you have to say. And the fact that you went off on a profanity-laced tirade really costs you the ability to witness to anybody about Jesus. Because how is that going to be helpful, right? What are you going to say about Jesus that anyone's going to believe? And if you do, they're going to associate Jesus with you and your profanity-laced tirade, and that's just going to give Jesus a black eye. So he agreed, and he took down the post, but there's no way to tell what impressions that formed about him or about Jesus or Christians in general. Now, whenever we speak out on something, we're bound to alienate somebody. It's just going to happen. But that's why we got to make sure that if we are taking the initiative to speak out, we are doing it for the right reasons and for the right purpose and for the right moment. And we need to bear in mind that God is not a Democrat or a Republican. And we need to bear in mind that if we need to vent about something and explode, we probably need to get a dog or a therapist or we need to take it to God, right? Let's not spew it out in a public forum where people can form an impression, not only about us, but more importantly, about Jesus and other Christians because of what we have said out in public. So that's the first thing. Pick your battles carefully and check your motives about why you are speaking, about why you're speaking on. And the second thing is to meet people where they are. Once we've decided that we want to speak out to people, it really is important to ask questions and understand where they're coming from. I struggle with this sometimes, I will confess, right? Speak first, ask questions later. That's kind of the way I roll sometimes. But we need to ask questions. We need to understand their perspectives and their insights, their life experiences, their struggles, their stresses, the, all the things that shaped their point of view on this particular topic, the way that they see the world. And sometimes people just want to be heard. So if we ask them questions and give them a chance to speak and reply, that can make a huge difference in terms of how much more open they will be to hearing in turn what we have to say in return. So meeting people where they are also includes making sure that their immediate needs are met. The idea, if you've heard this expression, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, that applies here. And James chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So actions really do speak louder than words. And if someone is starving or homeless, 
What they need as much as anything else is food and shelter. And so by serving others and meeting them in their moment of need, we have an opportunity to simultaneously show them God's love and share God's truth with them. But it's important that we meet them in their moment of need. And the last thing I want to share about this, number three, is this. If you're going to speak out, we have to count the cost and then do it anyway. Okay? Jesus knew that speaking out would come at a price. And the same is true for us. Over the years, finding my voice has cost me a high-paying job. my relationship with my daughter. And like many of you here today, forced you to leave your former church home. There's a price. And I'd be happy to share the details of those stories with anybody after worship if you want to hear them. But the reality is that there are people that pay a much higher price than that for speaking out. And I want to share an example today. Debbie, if you could put that slide up there. This is Marina Ofsianakova. So she's a Russian state television journalist. That's her holding the sign back there. So she's a Russian state television journalist. Many of you have seen this picture. So last month, she interrupted a live broadcast on Russian state television, holding up this sign. And it has a mix of English and Russian in there. So I'm going to read you what it says. The sign says, no war, stop the war. Don't believe the propaganda. Here, you are being lied to. Russians against war. And while she's holding up that sign at the same time, she's shouting, stop the war. No war. Now, for the millions of Russians who were watching that broadcast that day, that was the first time that they'd ever been told that there was a war. Because previously, the state-sponsored media was professing that there was a special military operation to liberate the people of Ukraine. And that was the first that they'd heard that there was a war. So here's what happened to Marina as a result of her protest. She was detained and interrogated. She was fined. And she ultimately fled the country. And her son has accused her of destroying their lives. And if she ever comes back into the country, she could face up to 15 years in prison for speaking out and finding her voice. And in a subsequent interview, she said this. She said she'd been feeling an increasing dissonance, her word, between her beliefs and what she was having to say on the air, on television. And the war for her was a point of no return when she said it was just simply impossible to stay quiet any longer. Now, we all want to be at peace with the world and with each other, but we have to be willing to choose a side. We have to be willing to draw a line in the sand. We have to be willing to find our voice when the time comes. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 10. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his daughter, 
or against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus gave his life for us. His disciples subsequently gave their lives for him. And if we want to be like them, like Jesus, like his disciples, instead of like the crowd, we are going to have to decide what price we're willing to pay as well. What will be the price? For each of us, it will be different. For some, the price may be big. For some, it may be small. For some, it may be small and seem big. It all just depends on who we are and what our circumstances. But there will be a price to be paid. And we all have to ask ourselves, what price are we willing to pay to grow God's kingdom and to grow disciples of Jesus Christ and be his voice in the world? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the words that you've given us this morning. We pray, dear Lord, that you will help us to find our voice. Whether our sphere of influence is big or small, whether our impact is great or little, it is all huge in your economy. We may never know, dear Lord, what effect our voice will have, what difference it will make, but you know. And we just pray, dear Lord, that no matter what the circumstance, you will help us just count the cost, find our voice, and speak out for truth, your truth. So no matter what happens to us on this earth, when we meet you in heaven on our last day, we can hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.